Who that? Three time Tommy joining us tonight. Gonna learn how to triple our money. I mean, can he triple our money? I don't think we can say that. Maybe we should say that all risk should be understood before making any financial decisions. We suggest speaking to an independent financial advisor to understand your specific scenario. Well, that gets the legalities out of the way. Three-time Tommy is not only three-time Tommy, but he's also the vice president and financial advisor for the Global Institution Advisory Solutions Group at Morgan Stanley. You say that three-time fast, three-time Tommy. <laughs> yeah, he'll get into some personal finance 101. He's going to talk about how you can take advantage of debt versus how debt can take advantage of you. He'll talk about how to lower your tax burden and also how to save for retirement. This is definitely an episode you're not going to want to miss. Tune in to three-time Tommy. If you want to make some money, listen up, boys and gals. Congrats on having your baby boy to you and your wife. Thank you, Pete. So let's just jump right into it. Tommy, how do we get rich, man? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I suggest not having any kids. <laughs> They're going to suck you dry. And, and second of all, what you want to do, Pete, which you've already accomplished, you, you want to find the right woman to back you up. Hell yeah. And you want to live off her for the rest of your life. <laughs> so really, you guys should be interviewing me on how to do this. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you've done it. But Marry a business owner. To, to be serious, what you want to do is have a long-term mindset. You really want to focus on your finances, make it a priority, and you really want to invest in riskier assets, not have your money just sit in a bank account. And you want to make it consistent. Contribute to your accounts on a monthly basis. Find the right assets and... Typically, that involves either real estate, the stock market, or your own business. So take risk, but take calculated smart risks. Absolutely. So when someone comes to you and they say, hey, Tom, I'm looking for a financial advisor. I'm looking to preserve my wealth for a long period of time. What are their most common goals and what do you tell them? So most people, their goal is to save for their children's education. They want to build their wealth. They want to save for retirement. They want to be comfortable. They want to have choices. They want to have options. And what it comes down to is just asking the right questions and figuring out your goals and thinking really hard what's most important to you and your family and then taking it from there. So keeping your goals in mind. And let's say my goal was when my son or daughter gets to be college age, I want to fund their college so what kind of like investment vehicles or what do you what do you tell them to use luckily we live in the great state of new jersey where <laughs> you get barely any benefits by contributing to a 529 but what's a, a 529 a 529 is a tax deferred think of it as a retirement account where you're not paying taxes as you're making money you also have access to a custodial account which is you you're giving ownership to your children Whereas the 529, you, the parent or grandparent, own the assets and you can transfer them to different children if the one child has a scholarship or does, decides not to go to college. So a 529 is strictly for educational purposes? Yes, yes. Strictly for educational purposes. If you don't use it for educational purposes, you're going to have to pay tax on your gains, not where you contribute. And then you're also going to have to pay a 10% penalty if you withdraw early or use it for non-education related uh, resources. So the benefit is tax deferment? Absolutely. So what would you say to somebody, let's say um, they want to start saving their money, but maybe they don't make a ton of it, right? So maybe somebody's like, well, I'm hesitant, right? I know I should be talking to a financial advisor, but you know, I only make uh, you know $700 a week. I don't know. Let's just say. And they're not really able to, they're just just getting by. What do you say to that person? 
everybody, no matter what your income is, you have to find a way to save. It's think of it as if the IRS were to impose a 10% additional tax, everybody would find a way to pay that 10% additional tax. What we have to do as individuals, what we have to do as families is figure out a way to save. We have to avoid keeping up with the Joneses. We have to avoid spending on things that don't matter. Figure out what's most important to you and then figure out a way to save. So great. I got my goals. I want to do this. I want to buy a house. I need to save for it. But what does saving mean? Does it mean taking that extra, maybe you make $700, maybe you take $100 and put it in your bank account. Should, should I be putting my money in my bank account and just sitting it there? Absolutely not. You, you want to have emergency savings. And the rule of thumb is if you're single, have six months emergency reserves. So look at your expenses, look at your rent, your mortgage, your insurance, uh, your car note, and then back out what that is. And if you're married, you're both working, you want to have at least three months. Um, if you're married, one's working, one's not working, then you want to have six months of reserve uh, as an emergency expense in your bank account. So a bank account is very important. Um, it's a great way to keep track of your spending, but you want to invest in a brokerage account, invest in real estate, invest in your own business that you're controlling yourself. Okay, so great. So two things to do with your savings. One, have your emergency fund. That's what you said. And then the second thing you said was invest it. Okay, that word investment or invest your money is so vague. People don't know what to do with it. People who are new to investing, they hear they hear advice all the time. They say, yeah, just invest your money. Put it in the stock market. So many people out there don't know how to put their money in the stock market. I can't open an E-Trade account and just say, here, here's $100. Here, take it. What do I do as a new investor? How do I invest in the stock market? Actually, you can. Just say it's $100. <laughs> so it's, it's, in this day and age, it used to be very difficult investing in the stock market. In this day and age, it is easier than ever before. Uh, there's many brokerage houses out there, E-Trade, Fidelity, Vanguard. Um, Morgan Stanley now purchased E-Trade. There's also robo-advisors where you can actually give your money to a, a, a company and they're going to invest in a diversified portfolio on a monthly basis if, you, if you're contributing monthly. And it's simply as opening the account, just like a bank account, you could do it all online. And that would be your first starting point. You want to set up the account, open it, and fund it with $50, $100, $100,000, whatever money you have that you know you're not going to touch for five years should be allocated to the stock market. So robo-investing, one of the most popular ones, Betterment, they have low account fees. What you could do is open up a Betterment account, very simple to set up, and then you tell it your risk allocation. So how would you determine your risk allocation? I, I hate risk allocation. I hate those questionnaires that they give you. People will think about their risk differently depending upon what's going on in the market. So, well, I think, let's, first of all, let's explain what is a risk allocation. So if somebody doesn't know what that means, what is that? And what is Betterment going to do with that risk allocation? So great question, Pete. So risk doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose all your money. If you're investing in quality companies, if you're investing in the broad stock market, risk just means the variability of returns. So there might be riskier means bigger ups and downs, less riskier means a much smoother ride. So a savings account is not going to have any variability around the returns. A 
very short-term treasury is not going to have any variability around the returns. It's guaranteed by the U.S. government. So when it comes to risk, the riskier the asset, the more ups and downs. So the more, more potential of, of profit. Potentially. Or potential of loss. Or potential of loss, right. So when they're asking you for your risk allocation, they're saying, how risky do you want to be? So me, okay. a 26-year-old, just turned 26. Congratulations. A 26-year-old <laughs> <laughs> who is not planning to retire anytime soon, I'm going to be super risky. And I, when I make my Betterment account, I'm going to say I'm very risky. I want those super volatile returns because I don't need the money right away. I'm but not you, retiring you, tomorrow. But you might have shorter-term goals. Yeah, so you so, can have different accounts right. for different goals. So within let's say same, I'm sorry. Within that same robo app, you so have different accounts. You can yes. It's, it's called goals. So let's say I have a, a short term goal of buying a house next year, and I need fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I don't want to put fifty thousand dollars in the stock market and have that variability. What if the stock market crashes next year? I still need a house next year, right? I, I need somewhere to live, and I need that fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So I'm actually going to be less risky in that, and I'm going to put it towards more fixed income bonds and something that has less variability, less risk. Got it. Cool. So just so everybody knows, I work at Morgan Stanley as a financial advisor, so I'm not necessarily condoning Betterment <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. But as Hunter said, what you want to do is find a vehicle that allows you to save on a regular basis that you're comfortable with. That's an easy-to-understand platform. And for Hunter, that happens to be Betterment. Right. The other thing I like with Betterment is... You hear talk all the time of just buy ETFs, buy ETFs, but a lot of people don't know how to just simply buy an ETF or which ETF to buy. What Betterment is doing for you is you just tell it your risk allocation and you tell it how and you deposit however much money you want and they'll choose the ETFs for you. They'll diversify for you. They'll put it in a bunch of different ETFs, stuff in US, stuff in other countries. We call that emerging markets or international. Um, we'll put they'll put it in stocks and bonds, however much allocation you tell it to. So that's the benefits of using robo-investors. But there's also some cons, right, Tom? So absolutely. So whether you're talking with a financial advisor, a human financial advisor, that'll actually speak to you and answer your questions. (laughs) Dig at (laughs) (laughs) robo-investing. You might view risk differently at different points of your life. So let's say the market's at all-time highs. You're going to think, oh, I'm a great investor, I know what I'm doing, I'm going to be super aggressive. But Especially men. Men are very overconfident in their ability to trade stocks. Well, technically women are better investors because but, of that overconfidence okay. bias. What you want to do is you really want to think about, am I investing when the market's at all-time lows and I feel that I'm, I'm a more conservative investor because things are so volatile? Or am I investing more aggressively because the market's at all-time highs? So what you really want to do is think about that risk questionnaire. Think about who you really are during any point in time because last March, the, the market was down 40% within a month. A lot of people, if you have, whether it's $500 or $500 million, you're going to think about risk differently at different points in the market cycle. Yeah, I think it's called hot and cold states. There's hot and cold states. In cold states, you're like, am I really that good? In hot states, you're like, oh my God, I'm the best investor of all time. So you want to strip that emotion out of your investing. Always strip the emotion out. And that's, that's something what, very hard to do, though. That's Easy, Easier said than done. It's easier said than done. And that's why speaking to a professional is always the best advice. Right. See, I think that would be better because this way, if I feel like when I'm investing on my own, 
I'm checking that stuff every and day. And super emotional. Super emotional. I'm like, oh, I lost $10. Damn. <laughs> you know? But, you know, you make a hundred bucks and you, like yeah. you said, you feel like you're the king yeah. of the world. But that's why I feel like it's better to work with a professional so that, you know, uh, Tommy, you can just like take control of that and then I don't have to look every single day yeah. and then that, you know, my life is much better because of you. I, I hope that the clients that I serve are not looking at their accounts every day. <laughs> and when you think about it, let, let's say you purchase a home. It's usually most people's biggest assets. They're not looking at what that price of their home is doing every single day. It's not flashing in front of their face every single day, it's every not minute of the yeah. day. So what you really want to do is take a step back. And the, the biggest asset you have as an investor is time. And I think that's the good thing with the robo-investing too, because it's sort of like a set it and forget it. You set your risk allocation and you set how much, maybe you want to do a monthly deposit. You can do a monthly deposit of $250, $500 a month, and it'll automatically deposit in there. It'll automatically put it in those ETFs for you, and you don't ever have to check it. You can check it in, in five years and say, oh my God, I made XYZ return, and look back and say, wow, that was pretty cool. And what's so interesting is today, we've seen an increase of inflation. So everything is going up in price. I remember when the first iPhone came out, it was like $300. Now the iPhones are $1,200. So they don't count that as inflation because there's so much more in the iPhones. You're getting so much more technology that it deserves that higher it's price. It's not like apples to apples. It's not apples to apples. So when you're filling up your gas tank and five years ago it was $2, today it's $4, well, that's apples to apples. So they're counting that as inflation. But if you have your money in a bank account earning 0%, and it's very important to understand why banks are paying 0% right now. Everything is built on credit. The Federal Reserve controls very short-term interest rates. So if interest rates are at zero to stimulate the economy, if everything is built on credit, you, you want to give out cheap credit. You might think of adding an addition on your house. You might think about buying another business. So you could borrow very cheaply and leverage yourself up. So, But on the flip side, if you're a saver, you're getting crushed. So if you're a saver and you got all your money in the bank account earning zero and inflation is three, you're guaranteeing yourself a negative return. And over 10 years, if you have $100,000 in the bank account just using round numbers, that 100000 in 10 years is now worth roughly $70,000. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how to use credit to your advantage because, you know, I my parents were very conservative growing up and, you know, they were always like, save, save, save. Nobody ever explained to me, you know, at a younger age, the benefits of using credit to your, to your benefit. So how can somebody do that safely and responsibly? So credit is a double-edged sword. So credit could make you the wealthiest person on earth. It could also destroy you. So when it comes to high interest rate credit cards, you want to avoid them. So what I typically do with my credit cards I charge everything I can because you get points. They're giving you money because they're getting money to use the credit cards. So what you really want to do is look at what credit you have out there. Is your car loan at 10% interest or is it at 1.5% interest or is that at 0% interest? Because that kind of credit is good for you. If your mortgage is at 2%, and the house is going up at 5% per year, that's going to be a pretty good situation for you. Right. So if you have a house, a mortgage, that's 2.5%, and, 
and we can put our money in Betterment and their return after fees is 5%. Or if you put your money with Tom and his company and he's giving you 25%, which is not guaranteed. You're, you're it's, actually, it's been a good market lately. <laughs> it's been a good market lately. You're actually better off not paying that extra term on your mortgage and not paying down that debt quicker because you could use that money that you would use to pay down the debt quicker and invest it and gain a higher return than the 2.5 you would have been paying on your mortgage. Now, the, the, the same is true with credit cards. What Tom was saying is your credit card, when you pay the minimum payment, you're paying around 25% in interest. So you're literally, like if you bought something for $100, you're literally paying an extra $25 every time you pay the minimum payment. And it's just costing you way more money in the long run. Your lower interest debt, you should not be paying off quicker and you should be putting that towards investment vehicles. 100%. So Tom, what's the difference between a credit card and a debit card? I know you said that you charge everything to your credit card because you get points. So on a debit card, you're not getting any points. So why would anybody even use a debit card? So with a debit card, you're actually taking on more risk. Let's just say you lose your wallet. Let's just say that somebody steals your debit card. Well, that money is coming directly out of your checking account. You're screwed. You're not going to get it back. You're not going to get it back. Meanwhile, if you have a credit card, there's security built into that credit card. Most credit card companies offer you 100% fraud protection. So if somebody steals your credit card, which is happening more and more every day, security and fraud is probably one of the most important things to think about when it comes to your financial life. You really wanna think about using your credit card, but you don't wanna use your credit card and charge your daily living with a credit card. Um, so. I, I have a debit card. I use it only to take out cash from the ATM or take out cash from the bank. I do not use my credit, my debit card to make purchases because number one, you're not getting any uh, extras from the debit card company for using the debit card. Meanwhile, with a credit card, you could get 5% cash back, 3% cash back, depending upon the credit card that you're using. And they have that built-in fraud guarantee that a debit card's not providing. So a credit card, to sum it up, a credit card, there's two perks. There's fraud protection, that protection that you're getting that you, you won't get with the debit card, and you also get the perks, the benefits from spending with the credit card. Another important thing when you're talking about a credit card is sometimes they, they hold these annual fees. You see like something that says, oh, we were giving you 10% cash back, but then the annual fee is $550 a month. You have to weigh what you think you're actually going to spend, weigh your perks versus the fee that they charge you. So Hunter, with Morgan Stanley... You could get, He's about to plug something, you, I know you, it. <laughs> you, you could get the American Express Platinum Credit Card, same credit card, same Platinum American Express, but if you have a certain amount of business with Morgan Stanley, they cover that full annual fee, which just got jacked up from five fifty to six ninety five per year. All yeah. the more reason to invest with Morgan Stanley. Invest with Tom at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> What's that dollar amount, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not getting into that. I think I'm still paying at six ninety five. Um, so, Tom, you mentioned, or maybe it was Hunter, I forget, but Tom, we were talking about goals, and I think that's super important because I feel like younger investors, maybe even older investors, don't really think about setting up um, and saving for specific goals in mind. Maybe. You know, they're like, oh, everybody's just thinking about retirement. So can we talk about how you set up goals and what are the common goals that people do um, set aside? Yeah. So some of those goals might be saving for a house, might be saving for your children's education, might be saving for a retirement or just trying to build up enough of a nest egg so you could retire early. 
um, there's this whole movement out there called the FIRE movement, which is invest, 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 save as much as you can, don't spend any money now, so that you can retire when you're 40, 45, 50 years old. There's some negative consequences to that. Uh, if, if you're retiring at the age of 40 and inflation is way up there, the markets, the market's been amazing the past decade. It doesn't necessarily mean that the market is always going to be this great. So yes, over the longer term, 20 years, 10 years, 30 years, I would hope that the market performs very well. But if you're withdrawing from your accounts that you've built up over the years, and the market just does absolutely nothing for 10 years or three years or two years, that, and you're taking money out of your portfolio, that could be a killer. You might end up trying to get back into the workforce, which will be very difficult to do. And you got to be very careful. So that whole fire movement, retire early, invest now, there's some negative consequences you really got to think about. And if you're considering that kind of retirement, you should really talk to a professional. Those later years are also your highest earning years as well. So not only are you missing out on all the inflation and stuff, but those are also the years when your salary is the highest. So one extra year, it actually means a lot more than another year in your 20s. Spot on, Hunter. It's like when I go on vacation. All the money I lost, all the money I spent. It's terrible. That's it. Yeah. So, Tom, we spit out so many words here. We talked about ETF. We talked about a stock and a bond and equities and fixed income and all that stuff. But let's just go through basics and let's talk about different asset classes. Let's talk about what the hell is a stock? What the hell is an ETF? What's a bond? What are all these things that we keep talking about? What's a, Let's start with stock. What's a stock? Whoa, Hunter. That's past my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's way past my pay grade. That's too high tech for let's, you. Let's, let's think about this. So, when you're purchasing a stock, you're actually purchasing a piece of a company. So you're gaining equity. Equity means that you have ownership. When you purchase a bond, think of yourself as a bank. You're lending a corporation, you're lending a municipality, you're lending somebody money. And just like a bank, when you're paying a mortgage, you're getting a fixed rate. And when it comes to a bond, just as long as that company, that municipality is still in business, you're going to know exactly what your return is. So there's limited upside, less risk, I would hope. But when it comes to owning a company or owning stocks, owning equities, you're actually participating in all the good times, all the bad times. So when it comes to stocks, I feel like people and investors don't have the know-how. They don't have the patience to really see that investment through. So they might invest in a company that is well-known and they're going to think about, okay, I want to make XYZ return in three months. That is the completely wrong mindset to have. When you're investing in a company, Pete, you, you have your own business. How long did it take you to start making money? How long did it take you to see that result? It is the same Thing with a massive company and I'm sure you've gone through tough times COVID last year shut everything down but you still have bills to pay companies massive companies massive corporations are still facing the same sorts of issues that small businesses are facing just on a different scale right so stocks so when you're buying a stock you're buying ownership like you said and you're participating in the high times and the low times which who knows that's the whole point of in, like hiring a professional to tell you which stocks are going to have more of those high times. 
No, nobody is flicking a switch at the New York Stock Exchange making stocks go up or making stocks go down. Stocks go up for one reason and stocks go down for one reason. When people buy, they go up. When people sell, they go down. That's it. So stocks are, are a much riskier purchase in general. All right? Right. Absolutely. A, yeah. When you put your money into stocks or equities, you want to have at least a five-year time horizon because over five years, you would hope that any issues are resolved. Um, let's pick on McDonald's. For a time, you go to McDonald's, the burgers were cold, everything was garbage, but they learned their lesson, they figured it out, now you get hot food. So at that time, the stock was terrible, now it's doing much better. Right, and so so how that translates to the stock price increasing is their product was better, more people are buying it, they're getting higher revenue, people are seeing that their revenue is increasing and they're buying the stock. And there's less poison. And no po and there's less poison <laughs> in it. That's the garbage why they like sell. It. <laughs> so the more people that buy the stock, then the stock price goes up. Maybe that time when the, their burgers weren't so good, that the word was getting around that, wait, McDonald's sells shitty burgers and they're putting fucking poison in their bodies. And people were like, let's sell that company. And they're selling their stock and the price is going down. So let me ask you this now. Let's say I'm a firm believer that McDonald's is going to turn their shit around and stop putting poison in their burgers. That price drops, but I own a thousand shares. What do I do? Do I sell it? Do I buy more? What do I do at that point? It depends. It really depends on the company. You don't want to catch a falling knife. You double so, down, baby. You double down. You double <laughs> down. So you don't want to catch a falling knife. What, what that, that means mean? is you don't want to buy a stock that is going down because there's significant issues going on in the company. You think there's going to be a turnaround when they can't execute on that turnaround. They don't have the right management team. They don't have the right balance sheet. So when we we're talking about bonds, just think of – Think of a company like you. So if you have bad credit, you're maxing out all your credit cards, you haven't paid your bills in 60 days. This is you... not me, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> this is completely not me. This is not Pete, by the way. But let's just say Pete Jr., who is not paying his bills, is not doing the right things, he's going to have a bad credit rating. So he, when he goes to buy a car, somebody will eventually lend to you but at massive, massive interest rates. Whereas if Tom has perfect credit and pays his bills on time, he's not going to have to pay much of interest. So it's the same thing with corporations. So Toys R Us, a local company, fell under recently because their debt was such at a high rate that they couldn't cover their debt burden. So they were still selling lots and lots of toys, but they couldn't survive because their debt was so high, which is the same thing that can happen to people in general. And that brings up a good point. Is what I was just thinking about is people always ask me, like I know anything more than them, but they ask me, what stock should I buy? What stock should I buy? And I, what I tell them is truthfully, buy companies that you truly believe in. Like if you're head to toe in Nike apparel, buy Nike. If you trust that company and you think they make good products and you think in the long term they're going to be successful, buy that company. You don't have to necessarily be a stock wizard and know all the fundamentals to pick good companies. And, so what if and I... fundamentals don't matter in the short term. Right. They matter in the long term. They don't matter in the short term. It's all about the mindset. It's all about what people are buying. Um, in January of 2021 this year, there was a segment of stocks that went flying. The fundamentals didn't support it. A lot of the professionals couldn't understand why these stocks were flying, but 
many people were buying and buying all at once, causing the stocks to go up. So over the longer term, GameStop the fundamentals matter, like their debt to equity ratios, their net income, how much money they're earning, how much their management is, is doing for the company. So fundamentals matter over the longer term, but some of the smartest people out there are absolutely terrible stock pickers because they don't understand the emotions of the stock market. Because when someone goes crazy on Reddit and just like somehow has a following and they say everyone buy GameStop and the price goes up and everyone, all the smart people are like, wait, no, nobody uses GameStop. Their revenue is zero and the stock price goes up. They're like, what the hell is going on? They just lost a lot of money. Yeah, but that's not real investing. That's just like some crazy that's, stuff that's, that's making been going a bet. on for like the past couple that's, of years. It's not investing, it's gambling, but yeah, sometimes gambling. investing could be gambling. But let me ask you this now. So let's say Pete Jr. is a degenerate, just came off a binder. He's got $200 left in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but he wants to buy Nike, but the Nike share is $500. He only has two. What does he do? That's a good question. So... There are firms out there that do allow you to buy set portions of a stock. So you could buy less than one share. Um, typically, you want to buy at least one share. So companies like Google and Amazon, their stock prices are in their thousands. Great companies, but a lot of people don't have that kind of money. So what you could do is purchase it through an ETF. Uh, an ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. Um, you're buying a basket of companies, not just one company, and you're typically getting them at a much lower share price than just going out there and buying these thousands of dollars shares out there. So you can buy partial shares. Yes. But you wouldn't technically advise that. You would say to look into an ETF instead. ETF or a mutual fund. That has the okay. holding of the stock that you're in interest in. Okay. So what's the difference between an ETF and a mutual fund? So a mutual fund trades once per day. It trades at 4 p.m. So you can't trade the intraday. You can't take advantage of the intraday swings. Typically, mutual funds have higher expense ratios. Um, typically, mutual funds are more actively managed. So you're paying a professional. You're paying a stock picker to pick the underlying investments, which could be all stocks, could be all growth stocks could be all uh, international stocks or it could be all bonds um, or a mix of all the above. And with an ETF, you're buying a basket and index that is passively managed. So there's a um, companies like S&P um, that create indices that are then the market average. So when people talk about the S&P 500, that is what S&P, Standard & Poor's, believes is the market average. So they're taking the 500 biggest companies in the United States, and there's your S&P 500. What you would do, you can't invest in an indice. What you can do is invest in an ETF that tracks the indice. So SPY, for example, SPY, is one of the most common ETFs that tracks the S&P 500. So the price is a lot less than the indice itself. And what you can do is you can buy shares of the SPY, the SPY, that actually track the S&P 500, and you have a portion of, you have those 500 companies just at a much lower scale. That's it. That's it. That's all it is. So let's talk a little bit, because I've heard a lot of in the past year about options and options trading, and this is a big uh, big hype around options. So I don't know if this is too complicated or not, but what are what are options? How do they work? How do people make and lose money on options? So most people lose money on options. 
you have to get everything perfect to make money on options. So you never want to buy options when volatility or the ups and downs of the stock market is, is elevated because you're paying more for those options, which is part of the price. Um, a, there's two main types of options. So you got a call option, which gives you the right to buy a stock or an underlying investment at a set price. You got a put option, which allows you to sell a stock or an underlying investment at a set price. And then you have many, many different types of strategies out there but to take advantage of market swings. The thing with options is so many things go into the pricing of options, like the, the time value, the volatility, the amount of volatility, the strike price, the current underlying price. And all of these things impact the current price of the option, the premium of the option. If you don't understand all of these things that go into the pricing of the options, it's going to be very hard to pick one that's that you think is going to pay off in the future. And it's also right. a less liquid market. So a lot of new investors say, oh, I just want to make a quick buck. Well, you should just go to the casino then. Yeah, it's, you know, it's gambling. When it comes to options, you can have the perfect idea. So you could say XYZ stock is going to hit $250 in two weeks from now. And you, you buy an option that expires in two weeks from now. And then it hits that price in four weeks. So you had the right idea. You got everything right, but you got the timing off and you lose 100% of your money. And another thing with that is even if it hits the 250 in two weeks, you still could not make money because of the time you paid a premium for the time, the volatility. That's right. All of this stuff that goes into the pricing of the option. That's why they're so difficult to time. They're so difficult to make money on. So it's 250 plus the price that you paid for that option. Right. So when would somebody buy an option because obviously there's times when you would want to purchase an option but maybe it's not for trying to get rich quick is there other reasons why people would invest in options there there's a few so number one is protection you could use it to hedge your portfolio against a decline or an upswing um, you so, could also use options to generate income so so you could write a call option to generate income everything that we've talked about on how to make money is called we're buying options for speculative purposes. We speculate that we're gonna that the price is gonna go up, and we think we could capitalize on that. So we're we're buying options for speculative purposes. That's right. So so just to summarize, what a new investor would do: we touched on robo investing, we touched on mutual funds, we touched on ETFs. There's a couple different strategies a new investor can use. A new investor who who wants to start saving and wants to start doing this scary word called investing, what they could do is first. Think about your goals, right? Think about how much money you want to save and what do you have any short-term goals? Do you have any long-term goals? Are you trying to buy a house? Are you trying to save for retirement? And then put some money aside to either an ETF, so open an E-Trade account or a Morgan Stanley account or any brokerage account that you want. Google some ETFs, exchange-traded funds that you can purchase that will diversify your account. Start saving there. Then you're investing in the total stock market. Or you can invest in a robo-investor like something like Betterment or a similar company that can do this diversification for you, with, which comes with a fee, comes with some cons that he said or that Tom alluded to before. But there's a couple different options you can do as a new investor to start investing your money in something that's going to earn you more than the inflation that you're losing on it. So, Tom, as a new investor, how long would I expect to start seeing some legit you know, increases and in gains in my money? It depends. So the past decade has been one of the best markets we've ever seen. And typically, 
things in the market reverts back to the averages. So if we've had above average returns, and sometime in the near future, we might have below average returns. But an easy rule of thumb is called the rule of 72. So if you're looking to double your money, so any investment you make, you should be wondering, how long will it take me to double my money? So if you take the rule of 72 divided by your expected return, which could be 5%, could be 10%, 15%, whatever you think is appropriate, then you're going to figure out how many years it takes to double your money. So if, if you want to so double... So 7.2 years. So you take that 72, that rule of 72, you're taking that 72, you're dividing it by your anticipated return of 10%. 72 divided by 10 is 7.2 years. So in 7.2 years, if I had $100 invested at 10%, it's going to double in 7.2 years. So now let's think of, so that's the average return in the stock market. Now let's think about the bank savers. So if you're earning 5%, Let's which, go, the bank is even less. Let's bank, say Banks are not even paying like close to way that. Way less than 1%, but let's just use 1% to be super aggressive as a bank. 72, 72 years. 72 years for your $100 in a bank at trading at 1% or in returning at 1%, which is not even anywhere near that at the moment. 72 years to double. And 5%, 14.4 years. So if you're a retiree, 5% might be a great return. It really depends upon what inflation is. So we call that in finance your real return, your after inflation return. So if inflation is three and you're earning one, you're doing terribly. If inflation is three and you're earning 15, you're doing great. Right. So what can we expect in today's market? Everybody's talking about inflation now, right? So what can we expect in the next, I don't know, three years, three to five years with inflation? What are we looking at? So when somebody asks that question, which is one of the most popular questions I get, what you really want to do is take a step back and say, what's happening with interest rates? So if interest rates are at zero and they're probably going to stay at this level for quite some time, they're eventually hopefully going to climb up, which shows that the economy is doing better, that it doesn't, the economy doesn't need to be supported by the Federal Reserve Central Bank. Um, I, I think that in the short term, there could be some increased volatility. Uh, in the next few months, we could see a pickup in volatility. We usually get an at least once per year, a 10% minimum correction. No matter what, if the market is up 30%, if the market is up 25%, at some point during the year, it's probably down at least 10%. The average intra-year decline on the stock market is about 14.5%. And I think that's why it's important to, you're, you're talking about annual returns and at one point in time, it's down 10%. And I think that's why it's important to have a long-term view as investors, especially young investors who have a lot of time for retirement, a lot of time, they're, they're earning money right now. I don't need that investment money right now. And I think that's why it's important to think long term and don't look at annual returns. Look at returns over the last five years, last 10 years. And at the very moment, and Pete, I didn't answer your question yet. So at the very moment, the country is very divided. If we were together as a country, we could see better returns in the future. But this might hold us back quite a bit. So in the short term, the very, very immediate short term, now until year end, I would expect some volatility. But over the next three years, with interest rates as low as they are, and I would say we're probably in the middle of the economic cycle, there's still 
a, probably at least a few years of pretty decent returns in the stock market to be had before we see the next recession. All right. So when I think when a lot of people think of inflation, they think about gas prices going up, milk prices going up, prices of eggs going up. But when we're referring to that in uh, for the stock market with inflation, then we're thinking about the prices of the stocks declining. Is that is that a representation of inflation with the stock market? In the short term, it could be. In the longer term, one of the best hedges against inflation is the stock market or real assets, which could be real estate or. So and, and great point. Okay, so that's another question I want to bring up. So a lot of times when I talk to people about investing. Most of the time, somebody's either like, oh, I'm all in on the stock market, or somebody's like, I never touch the stock market. I'm strictly into real estate. I see but, that a lot, too. But you can kind of mix the two. You should. Right? So yeah. real estate is actually not very correlated with the stock market, so it's actually a good hedge against the stock market returns. And correlated means they go up and down together. So right. non-correlated, one might go up, one might go down. Right, so it's actually a good hedge against the stock market. It's actually it's it's important to diversify your portfolio and have a little bit of both. Okay. Because if you have stocks and you have real estate, maybe the stock market does terribly. Well, maybe your your home is still holding its value. But but maybe can, the other way around as well. But and real estate but, is a great store of value. But my question is, can can't you invest in real estate through the stock market? You can. You can so, invest in REITs. So that's what I want to discuss. How do we do that? So when it comes to publicly traded REITs, they're very primarily driven on interest rates. I'm going to stop you guys. What's a REIT? Real estate like investment use. trust. So if it's a REIT, you got real estate. Um, there's income passing through you, so there's tax advantages. So one of the benefits of investing in real estate is the tax advantages. So Real like, estate via the stock market. Is that what we're still talking well, about? Well, both. So... So there's tax advantages for you yourself owning real estate directly, like actual, directly. So it's tangible. Called, it's real called estate. directly and indirectly. Indirectly is a re a direct investment in real estate is a house or a, okay. a, a a building. Gotcha. So direct investing in real estate. Go ahead. And the indirect investing uh, through a publicly traded REIT. Um, one of the indices to own in general would be VNQ Vanguard Real Estate. Uh, uh, trust. When it comes to real estate, um, again, you own it because of the tax advantages. Now, where I feel like a lot of people go wrong is they they think that their home is an investment. Their, your home is a place for you to raise your family. A, a home is a place for you to go home after work. Uh, it's yours. It's, it's not necessarily an investment. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. Um, when you're a real estate investor and when you're talking to your friends that are all about the stock market, all about real estate, the real estate guys are probably not talking about their own home. Your own home, it's, it is what it is. Um, they're talking about building a strip mall or building a medical office. And when it comes to the stock market or stock market REITs, uh, there's medical office REITs, there's office space REITs, there's industrial REITs, there's apartments, there's multifamily housing. So what you want to do as an investor is think about the hottest spots of the market, which I might consider at this very moment industrial because the boom of e-commerce or multifamily housing because there's a lot of people out there that just can't save enough for a down payment and need to continue the rent. 
So if we want to talk about buying versus renting, there's a bunch of different pros and cons. We can talk all day about the pros and cons of, of, of buying a house versus renting an apartment, a condo, even a house, a multifamily. Some of the pros and cons of renting is that you can't really quantify is the, the renting gives you feasibility to leave. And you don't have the burden of those transaction costs, which could be quite high. Right, your hot water heater breaks sell. could be the, the price of your whole rent for the whole year if you owned a house. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of fixed costs with a house that people don't think about when they're just buying a house. They think, oh, I need equity, I need equity, because they hear it all the time. And what are some of the pros and cons of buying versus renting? So if you're going to buy your own home, you really want to be there 10 years, 7 years plus. Because if you're going to buy a home, sell it in a year, you're going to get crushed from... You're going to have to pay a real estate agent four, five, six percent to sell it. You're going to have closing costs on your mortgage, which could be many thousands of dollars. Um, so when it comes to renting, and I know people that have billions of dollars that don't own any real estate. They rent their real estate because they don't want to have that burden of fixing something or worrying about um, their, their real estate across the country or across the world. Not to mention the tax advantages have also decreased, right? Yeah, unfortunately, especially in higher tax states like New Jersey, California, New York. So uh, what happened in New Jersey that, well, taxes are, property taxes are very high in New Jersey, but what kind of relief or what kind of tax advantages got eliminated? with the So tax in New Jersey, home prices are very high. So if even if you get a halfway decent home, it's probably going to be well above a half million dollars. So typically banks ask for 20% down payment, which on a half million dollar home is a hundred grand on a million dollar home. That's $200,000. And you got to be able to come up with that money as a down payment. And then you're going to have the closing costs. And then you're going to have to think about how long you're going to be in that location. Uh, so there's there's a lot that goes into buying a home, whereas when you're renting, you have that flexibility. Um, also, what's happened, Hunter, that you're referring to in 2018, uh, the tax law changed. So in, in states like New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, um, the there's a $10,000 per year cap on either state income tax and property tax. So most property tax, especially in New Jersey, North Jersey specifically, is through the roof. So typically, if you're living in New Jersey and you're doing quite well, you're going to max out that tax deduction just by your state income tax deduction. Um, so you're not going to be able to deduct your property taxes like someone in Florida where there's no state uh, income tax would be able to do. Where the taxes, where the property taxes are also much lower as well. Oh, 100%. So, so it sounds like when you're renting a property, you have freedom, you have, uh, you don't have the headaches and the burdens of leaks in the ceilings and hot water heaters breaking and all that type of stuff. So, but what are some of the benefits of owning a home? Are there any left? Uh, so, I bought a home three years ago. Um, thank you. I bought a home three years ago because we were thinking about starting a family. We wanted that stability. We didn't want to have a kid or children and the landlord says, oh, you guys got to leave in six months. I'm selling my, I'm selling this house. I'm selling this apartment. Uh, we also wanted more space and a better school system. And typically with the better school systems, 
they there's going to be less rental properties available so that's why we ended up buying um, we got very lucky fortunately we did not have to buy last year when right. there was extreme competition people leaving the city people worried about COVID or changing their mindset so we got very lucky in that we bought uh, in August of 2018 and um, thankfully we've we made some money on that but I when I bought that house it was not this is an investment to me it was a cost and actually all this been is a cost because you got to fix the refrigerator you got a new air, air conditioning unit the floor comes up there's water there's it's never ending when you are owning a rental property you're renting out to people you get to deduct all that all that fee all those fees from your uh, income Whereas when it's your own home, you don't get the ability to make those deductions. So we're talking about taxes a little bit. How does, so aside from owning something that gives me a return and then I can write off the expenses, how does someone like a salaried employee, how do they save on their tax burden? There's two ways. Now, um, you own a home and you get a little bit of a deduction. Uh, you, you can deduct up to $750,000 of your mortgage and make charitable contributions. So if, if you're making a charitable contribution, let's say you make a charitable contribution of $1,000, you can deduct your income by $1,000. So you're still spending money to save on taxes, but you're typically if you're doing charitable contributions, it's for the goodness of your heart, not just to save on taxes. So when we say we're deducting it from our income, can you just explain what that means a little further? So when you're deducting that, when you're making a deduction from your income, you're lowering your income, which lowers your effective rate that you're paying on taxes. Right. So you're lowering your taxable income. So if I made $100,000 and I donated $10,000 to charity, I'm only paying taxes on $90,000 of my income. That's right. So Tommy, I also I see these articles all the time where, uh, where uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Benzos, what's his name? <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Bezos, Bezos, yeah. Bezos. Bezos, Jeff fucking Pesos, whatever his fucking name. No, Elon Musk and some of these, you know, multi-billionaires, they're not paying any taxes. Right? How do they get around that? This strategy is open to everybody and anybody. It's just that they have so much equity that they're able to do it on such a massive scale. So Elon Musk is well known for not taking a salary, but he's the richest person in America, actually in the world, he's worth two hundred billion dollars. And Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk—they're—they're fighting for the number one spot. I don't know if they both even care about that. Uh, but essentially, it's all public knowledge because when you have a certain amount of ownership in a public company, the whole world gets to know about it. So what these two guys do to support their lifestyle is they borrow from their stock or from their portfolio. And since they're borrowing from and not making any kind of sales, so he doesn't owe any capital gains on that transaction. He's borrowing from himself, and he just never pays it back. So, so he's borrowing from himself. He's not going to a bank and saying, like, here, I have 10 shares. Give me the worth of well, that. Well, the bank is... Who's funding the cash? So the brokerage company is giving him a very, very attractive loan probably much less than 1% interest rate because it's such a massive amount and it's such low risk for them because they get all their stock. So 
Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos pledges his stock. He borrows from his existing equity position of fund his lifestyle. He doesn't need a salary because he's got billions upon billions of dollars worth of equity. So just like you and I could tap into um, our portfolio equity, um, we could also tap into our home equity with a home equity line of credit. Uh, they're doing the same thing, but just on a much more massive scale. And what's crazy is the way the current tax law is set up is that when you pass away, your beneficiaries get a step up in cost basis, which means that if, let's say, Elon Musk started Tesla at a dollar per share, and now it's worth on a pre-split basis, because it did have a stock split, $2,000. So he's got massive gains in there. Well, when he dies, his beneficiaries would inherit that stock at two thousand dollars, which is today's. So they don't have to pay. Value. They don't have to pay the all the gain. Nothing. So he's never going to actually sell his shares. Never. He's just going to keep borrowing it against it, and he's never going to run out because he, he has ne- so many shares. He has such a massive. And as the share price increases, one share is worth more. He doesn't even have to borrow as much to fund his lifestyle. So I would recommend everybody read Warren Buffett's book. But Warren Buffett comes across as this nice old man, so pleasant. He says billionaires should be taxed more because he knows he will never pay a dollar of taxes. What he does is when he buys a company, he typically strips the dividend or as much as he possibly can. Like he owns a big share of Apple, but he can't strip the dividend. It's just too big of a company. But if he takes over a dip, if he takes over a company, he typically strips the dividend so he doesn't pay any dividend tax. Income tax, yeah. And he just, he's going to donate through his philanthropic. Uh, endeavors and he's never going to pay any taxes so there's there's more to it everybody should read his books it's a great resource he's very brilliant he's a little bit old now but he's again a brilliant investor and will always be known as a brilliant investor Uh, and he's a buy and hold as well he's a buy and hold guy but he will never pay tax. So he will go around all day long, say, raise the tax on billionaires, raise the tax on billionaires. Because he knows it's not going to affect him. never affect him. Of course. So, so this strategy can actually, you don't have to own the company in order to do it. The only reason they can do it is because they own the company and they have so many shares. But theoretically, let's say... We could all do this on our own. Right. Theoretically, let's... Just on a much smaller scale. Right. So let, theoretically, let's say I own 100,000 shares of Apple. So I can go to E-Trade and say, here, take... 10 of my shares and give me the market value equivalent of it? Yes, but the the interest rate some of these online brokers charge will be higher than... Because I'm not a billionaire. Exactly. So wait, what's the difference between doing that and just selling your... Selling 10 shares. Because if you sell your 10 shares, then you're losing ownership and then they lose control. So they lose voting power. So they never want to sell their shares and lose control over their company. And they're also realizing the the gain. So if you sell, you're going to have a capital gain, which Congress is talking about increasing the capital gains tax rate. So this is more, it's actually, oh, like you guys said, it's a loan. So you pay zero tax. So they're taking a loan. That's it. From the brokerage firm. That's it. Based on the shares that they have. And then from the brokerage firm, they own those shares now. So you pledge those shares, so you lose a little bit of control. you got to pay back that loan before that pledge comes off. So he can't transfer his shares to another brokerage firm until that loan is paid off or that other brokerage firm 
pays off that loan. So how could somebody like myself or Hunter or you or, or you know everyday guys, how could we do that? We can't really do that. You, you come you to no my my clients do that all day long. So when my clients want to buy real estate, so you ever watch those real estate shows where everybody's paying cash? For yeah, the real estate. Yeah, explain that. Nobody pays cash for real estate. What they do is they use their lending account or what Musk is doing, borrowing against their investments. The brokerage firm lets them borrow at close to next to nothing because interest rates are almost nothing. And they pay cash for that house. They turn around, get a mortgage in a month or two, or and that's how it's done. So they, they're able to negotiate a better deal. By saying we're paying cash, but then they just turn around later on and get a mortgage at two so, percent interest. So the brokerage account gives them the cash temporarily, short term. Yes, they, short term or long term. But then they buy. So most of the time, they'll then buy back the shares that they lent out. They'll get the mortgage. That'll then repay the loan. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wait. So yeah. hang on a sec. So if I want to buy a house for five hundred thousand dollars, well, let's just say, I go to my brokerage account and I say, listen, I want to get a loan based on my shares. Of five hundred thousand. So to get five hundred thousand, you'd have to have Way a more. minimum of a million dollars worth of stock, or at least why a million seven hundred and fifty. So the brokerage firms know that the market is risky. They know that stocks are going to go up and down. So that is their way of covering their butts. So it's you need margin. to have two X though. I'm saying that's roughly when it comes to stocks. Okay. Got it. So this is known as borrowing on margin. So this is just a margin account. However, margin accounts are usually higher interest rates. Um, most of the high-end boutique or uh, bigger brokerage investment firms out there, uh, they have lending accounts that are much lower interest rates. Okay. So then let's say I borrow, or you would say 200000 right? And the house is still five hundred. So now I have a $300,000 mortgage. Correct. Okay, so now how is that loan being paid back? Well, you have two loans right now. You have a loan on your brokerage account, the 200000 plus right. your mortgage from your bank or whoever you got your mortgage from. So you actually right. have two loans that you need to pay back depending on the interest rate. Maybe your effective rate is better than just getting the total thing from the... Right, so now this doesn't sound like a great idea, but before, about three minutes ago, it sounded like a great idea. So, so how does it go it, from a good idea to a bad idea? Because it's such a... So they have so much equity that they're never going to run out. And their their effective interest rate is so much lower. They have they have collateral. They have all that stock. That company knows that they're going to pay them back eventually. They don't care. They have a million dollars of their money. And if they don't pay them back, they got they, the stock. Right. They have they have over millions of dollars of their money. Right. So they had that's the collateral right there. So this isn't necessarily a great strategy for. So Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they're not going to spend a hundred billion dollars. Right? right. So that's the difference. They're spending. Uh, even a few, let's say they're spending $100 million a year, that's nothing in the terms of this loan. But when it comes to you and I, let's say we have a million dollars of equity and we're trying to borrow 500, that's super risky. But if, right. if you and I had $25 million and trying to borrow a half a million, that's not that risky. What can our listeners do today to help start building their, their net worth? What can they do right now? Most importantly, manage your balance sheet. So when you think about your balance sheet, that's your assets minus your liabilities. That's, that equals your total net worth. 
So the most important thing to do today is reduce your high interest debt. So if you have credit cards that you're paying 20, 25, 24, 14% interest on, reduce that as soon as possible. Find a way to pay that out as fast as you possibly can. Once you reduce your liabilities, and we talked about important liabilities that you don't necessarily have to reduce that could enhance your lifestyle, could enhance your, your balance sheet, but the other side of that is increase your assets. So to increase your assets, we have to find a way to save. There's a few vehicles out there that give you a little bit of an edge. So when you think about that edge as an investor, so you got taxable brokerage accounts, you want to be mindful of your tax burden, you want to offset your gains and the losses within the portfolio, but then you also want to think about uh, tax advantage accounts like a Roth IRA, like a traditional IRA, like a 401k through your workplace, or if you're a small business owner, it might be a, a SEP IRA. Um, what you really want to think about is how do I increase my assets? And I find, and I'm a bit partial here, but use the stock market. It is the easiest and most efficient way to generate a real return after inflation, after tax, to grow your net worth. So what exactly is an IRA? An IRA is an individual retirement account. It can't be a joint account. Um, there's limitations on how much you can contribute per year. Um, if you're under the age of 50, you can max out your 401k at work with $19,000 per year. So if you contribute $19,000 in 2021 to your 401k at work, you're going to reduce your income by $19,000, which then reduces your overall tax burden. Beyond that, depending upon your income, you can also make a traditional IRA contribution or a Roth IRA contribution. So you just covered a lot. So let me just summarize a little bit. So we talked about how can we increase our net worth. We talked about assets and liabilities. Just to clarify, an asset is something that you own. A liability is something that you owe. So a credit card, you owe money to that credit card. That's, it. That's an example of a high interest debt that we want to pay down first. Some of the assets that he was talking about, he was talking about buying stocks. That's how when we talked about opening up an E-Trade account or opening up a Betterment account and buying some ETFs, buying some mutual funds. Those are all assets. That's how you're going to build your net worth. And then we talked about some 401ks and IRAs. What those are are retirement accounts. So now we're speaking of how are we going to save money for when we retire. Now, what Tom was touching on was a 401k that's sponsored by your company. So a lot of times companies sponsor a 401k and they're going to match up to, let's say, 3 or 4% of whatever money you contribute. Get that full match. It's free money. So if they're going to match up to 4%, you better make sure you're getting that 4%. At a minimum. But you could also add even more to your 401k, which most times you should, thinking about the longer term. So if you're thinking about the longer term and how expensive it is to live, when you're 65, it's going to be even more expensive with inflation. So that's why you should be putting out as much money as you can into your retirement account so you can you don't have to work your whole life and you can enjoy your life post-retirement. You don't want to eat cat food in retirement is <laughs> exactly. what it comes down to. <laughs> well, you can also revert back to the first answer you had and just 
marry some girl who's very wealthy and then you don't have to worry about any of this kind of stuff like peter exactly <laughs> hard working love hard working love immigrants <laughs> you believe it. all right so can tom can you please explain to our listeners the difference between a traditional 401k or traditional ira versus a roth ira or roth 401k what it comes down to is how they're taxed so a traditional ira is pre-tax so what you're doing is you're getting a tax deduction today, it's growing tax-free, and then when you take money out, you gotta pay taxes. The benefit of a traditional IRA is that most people hope that their tax break, tax bracket is lower in retirement, but if you do this the right way, you start saving early, nine times out of 10, you're gonna be in the same tax bracket. That's the goal of financial planning. Or even higher, because even if, you want, higher. if you have that lifestyle that you become accustomed to by the time you're 65, you don't want to downgrade your lifestyle when you're 65. No way. And just think about it. When we're at work, we're not spending money. So when you're retired- no, Imagine all that free time. Oh, you got a ton of free time. Life is expensive. So just going to Disney World or going on a trip, going anywhere, it's expensive. So you really want to focus on savings. Because you're not going to be working. You're going to have a ton of free time. You can only watch so much Netflix at home. <laughs> so it's going to be probable that at retirement, you might be in a higher tax bracket. In that would be the goal. That would be the goal. So in that case, you would want to invest in a Roth IRA where, or 401k where you're paying the taxes up front. So correct. A Roth 401k is you're using after-tax money. It grows tax-free, and then when you Withdra retire and withdraw money, you're not getting taxed. The other benefit of a Roth is you don't have required distributions. Because when it comes to a traditional IRA, the government says, well, hold on. We gave you all this tax-deferred. We gave you a tax deduction up front. When you hit the age of 72, we want our cut. So you got to start paying you got to start withdrawing money so that the IRS can then tax you. It sounds like it all comes down to, do you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket when you retire, or do you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket now? If you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket when you retire, if you want to live that lavish lifestyle, if you want to keep up that high cost of living, the, the Roth IRA sounds like the better deal, or the Roth 401k. So normally it is, but there's a lot of asterisks here because if you retire in let's say a zero income tax state like florida or texas you're not going to have a state income tax and if you know for sure you're going to be retiring in one of those zero income tax states maybe you want to think about a traditional ira but so nine times out of ten if if you're younger and uh, your income is growing you're expecting your income to be much higher you want to look at a roth it's and a very powerful tool. Just to clarify, you can't escape federal taxes. No matter where you live in the country, you're always paying federal taxes. Florida, those kind of states, you don't pay state taxes, which is a subset of your total tax liability. That's it. All right, so how do we calculate how much money one can put aside for investment? All right, so how can how can one do that responsibly without saying, okay, I'm just going to take 50% of my you know my paycheck and put it towards investment, but then you know, I don't realize that I, I need a little more money to pay my rent. Like, how do you calculate that? It's it's a very difficult question. It's a very, even more difficult question to answer. It really depends upon you, the individual. But a good rule of thumb is save 20%. So 
So if your company matches you 10% uh, on your 401k of your income, then maybe uh, saving 10% of your own money makes a lot of sense. But if you don't have access to a match at work, maybe try saving that, that 20%. I think that's a pretty decent rule of thumb. Save 20% of your money and then enjoy the rest and then make sure you're paying Uncle Sam his fair share. And 20% may seem high, but if you be- if you live below your means, meaning if you're making $100,000 and you're, you're not spending like you're making $100,000, you're spending like you make $80,000, $70,000. If you made $70,000, you'd still find a way to live a happy life. It's not all about how much money you make. If you live below your means, you'll always have the capability to save that 20% at retirement at, at age 65. A million dollars might seem like a lot, but I don't think it's a lot of money when you retire at 65 to have a million dollars. And I also don't think it's that hard to get to a million dollars. What do you think about how much money you should have and how do we get there? Is it feasible to have to be a millionaire by, by retirement age? It's easier said than done. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication and it takes a lot of patience. But unfortunately, a million dollars today is not a million dollars when maybe your grandparents retired 30 years ago. It doesn't go as far as it used to. Typically, you want to save or try to save at least $5 million. Because again, that nasty, nasty word inflation is going to crush what that million dollars in 30 years is actually worth or what that purchasing power of that million dollars is. So focus on how much money you need to live on in retirement, and then you can back out of there. Good rule of thumb is you can withdraw 4% of your total net worth or your total asset base, your total liquid asset base on an annual basis. Um, So saving 20% and then withdrawing roughly 4% in retirement, I think makes a lot of sense. The biggest risk that I see retirees facing today is living longer than they thought. So outliving your money, inflation, and the cost of long-term care. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age when Alzheimer's, um, we're on a no poison podcast. We're all trying to live a lifestyle that is enjoyable. We don't want to be in a hospital bed. Two thirds of us will need some kind of long-term care down the road. And that long-term care is brutally, brutally expensive. In this North Jersey, New Jersey area, it could be about $15,000 per month. To be protected against those high costs, I mean, it's definitely something to look into to buy long-term care insurance, to buy life insurance, to buy disability insurance. These things are more probable than you think. You mentioned the number $5 million, right? And I think a lot of people are like, whoa. Like $5 million sounds unfeasible to a lot of people or just like, you know, monopoly money to a lot of people. Is it really feasible? Like how, how do you do it? How do you get there? Got to make saving a priority. You got to have patience. You got to not fall for the next get rich scheme. You really want to avoid all this garbage on Instagram that promises you to make you a millionaire overnight. Anything worthwhile takes time. Whether it's a relationship, it's your business, it's investing, everything takes time. Have patience and you'll get there. You've got to make it saving a priority. And $5 million might be a lot for somebody that might have a lower lifestyle. Um, 
or five million might not be enough. It really depends upon you, the investor, the person, the family, your needs. There's so much that goes into it. So five million dollars is a general rule of thumb for this area. But maybe you retire in a different country. Maybe you retire in a different state that has a much lower cost of living, and the five million dollars might be too much. And getting back to that rule of 72, the five million might seem like a scary number. But remember we talked about that $100 and that $100 doubling in 7.2 years at an interest rate of 10%. In another two years, in another 7.2 years after that, it's going to double again. But not only is the initial $100 doubling, the $200 is doubling. So in the 14 years, that $100 went to $400. That's four times in 14 years. Another seven years after that, it's doubling again. So now it's going to eight times. So in 21 years, it's now times eight. Your, your investment grew by eight times. So another seven years after that, you can only imagine. It's going to be 16, then 32, then 64. So this is called compound interest. When you're getting interest on your interest, that's the, that's the crazy thing about investing. And that's why people, that's how people get wealthy. Is it's compound interest. They're getting interest on their interest. And the first million is the toughest. After the first million, the power of compounding, which is my favorite invention the world has ever seen for obvious reasons, but the power of compounding takes over. So if you hit that first million, you'll get to a five million quicker than you would think. All of these things we've talked about, so investing your money, uh, living below your means, saving for retirement, all of those things are important, but I want to talk about a little bit about like the mindset of, a, of an investor, of someone who's going to be successful, someone who's going to do all these things. When you, you talk with a lot of successful people in, in your day job, what are some of the, the mindsets, the attitudes that these sort of people have? Number one, they're never worried about keeping up with the Joneses. Right. A lot of my clients, you would think they're poor. You would think, how does this person have five, ten, twenty-five million dollars? So wait, name? driving a Lamborghini doesn't make you wealthier? Absolutely not. <laughs> and I would bet money that probably sixty percent of the time, the person driving the Lamborghini has less money than the neighbor you think. Yeah, right. Doesn't have driving much money. Driving the Volvo. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing my clients, they're too smart to fall for these get-rich-quick schemes, which are rampant nowadays. We were just talking about it, but stay away. If, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. We have gut instincts for a reason, and if it was so easy, why wouldn't they be doing it themselves? The other aspect, they got wealthy by investing in the stock market, investing in their own business, or investing in real estate not everybody there's only one ceo job uh, at a company you know um, there's only so many c-level executives in this country it is very difficult to get to that kind of level so you really want to save as much as you can if you haven't been an investor the other aspect that my clients have in common is they don't mind paying for advice whether it's legal advice, tax advice, financial advisor, if you're receiving quality advice, you got to pay for it. But you should receive a return on your investment. Let's say you're paying a financial advisor 1%. You should expect to see 3% in value from that relationship. Then if you're not, maybe you want to consider another financial advisor. Another thing with that is also 
you want to be able to understand what the advisor is talking about. So you want to be doing your own research as well. You don't want to just blindly trust someone, even someone as professional as you. I would strongly argue that you need to be doing your own research, understand these concepts for yourself, whether it's trusted sites on the internet, Investopedia, those sorts of things. Understand what you're, what the advisor is talking about before you just go and talk to an advisor. That's another thing they have in common. They're voracious readers. They're reading constantly. They're reading all types of different books. I, I feel like a lot of people nowadays are just so confined and they want to get validated. So they talk to the same group of friends. They, they read the same book or they, they listen to the same news organization. Get out there and turn on CNN, turn on Fox, turn, turn on, on No Poison, turn on No Poison, listen to podcasts. There's we are so lucky to be living this day and age where there's so much information out there, which could actually hurt you. Right? You don't know where to go, but there's incredible amounts of free information out there. Read some books. Go to Amazon. Read some books. Support Jeff Bezos. He needs a couple extra billion. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, they they don't talk. They do. They are great people. They put others ahead of themselves and in this I, I believe in the universe it comes back to them many many fold so they give and they get all right so Tommy so when Morgan Stanley decides to sponsor the no poison podcast and, and Hunter and I become you know disgustingly rich <laughs> and we have so much money that I love it yeah so you're gonna be obviously our first call to start managing our, our financials um, when we call you or you call us right because we have so much money you're just gonna be like, dude, <laughs> we need them guys <laughs> Um, are you, I'll, I'll be knocking at your door. Love it. <laughs> now, are you gonna? Is it more like, hey, listen, Pete, um, I really think you need to be buying company X, Y, and Z. Like, let's take some money. Let's let's buy that right now. Or is it more where the client is calling you and saying, hey, Tommy, you know, I like company uh, X. What do you think? Should I be buying this? Or you know, are you more aggressive in the sense of like, I'm gonna call the client and tell them what they should be investing into? Or in terms of instead of like stock picking, are you telling them? Are you making sure they're protected from all aspects? Are you making sure they're saving enough for retirement? Are you making sure that they're just they're putting their allocations in the correct spot rather than just picking certain specific companies? So every client that I work with has a different goal. Um, every client wants to make money. Every client wants to protect on the downside. Every client might not want to go up and down with the market. Um, I am a senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley, which means that I can take full discretion over a client's account and buy XYZ stock or XYZ bond without their permission. Um, you have to be accredited and go through many, many tests to do that, to take control over somebody's financial life. Uh, but my clients are busy. Uh, I'm sure my clients, if they had the time, they could do this on their own. But they choose to work with me because two heads are better than one. When times are really bad, unfortunately, as humans, we're not set up to think long term. We're set up to think uh, fight or flight. You know, it's like, what do I do right this minute? So when times get really bad, like last March, when the pandemic hit, there was people on CNBC all over the news saying, this is the end. Everybody goes sell their stocks. And if you would have done that, you would have guaranteed losses. But if you would have had a real professional on your side of the table, it would have been a game changer.
if you had someone who would average down, and what that means is buy down when the prices were so cheap, you would be swimming in cash right now. And someone that had enough knowledge to prepare for the difficult times ahead. So go into March 2020 prepared and with some cash on the sideline. In order to take advantage of the downturns. Yes. You always want, so we talked about cash earning close to nothing or in some countries negative returns. There's also a safety mechanism. So if the market's a little bit more highly valued than it should be today, maybe you want to just take some profits. You know, um, nobody ever got hurt by locking in profits. And it's also important to have some cash on the side. So when there is a downturn, you have some cash at hand to then take advantage of those lower prices. Unfortunately, we as humans, we never learn our lessons. <laughs> That's true. You got 2008, 2009 that hurt a lot of people. Last March hurt a lot of people. And you want to have some cash ready for those inevitable downturns. And unfortunately, during our lifetimes, we're, we're on the younger side. We're going to see other pullbacks, other deep recessions. And everything will look a little bit different. But the reality, there will be a time when investments don't do so well or don't work out the way you, you expect them to. And you just got to be prepared. And having a little bit of cash, there might be some drag on your portfolio. It'll give you some peace of mind. So, Tom, we spoke a lot about a lot of different things. Um, do you have any last bit of advice for our listeners before we, uh, before we go? I do. It's all about balance. Finding the right balance. Finding the right balance upon how much you need to save on a regular basis. How much you're spending. Uh, we talked a lot about saving, but... I think everybody should take away that finding the right balance is most important. So um, enjoy your lives. We all work hard. We're all connected more than ever before. We don't get any breaks. Reward yourself. If, if you have a great year at work or your business is doing really well because of all your hard work, give yourself a reward, which might be different for the three of us. Reward yourself time to time. But on the other hand, make sure you're saving. Make sure that your saving is a priority, your family is a priority, your long-term is a priority. Life is short, but life is long. So save for the worst times, save for retirement, but enjoy yourself today. Find that balance. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been an unbelievable episode. I hope someone could take away of how to just get started investing, some key things, some key tips and tricks on how to save money in taxes, what Elon Musk does to save his money in taxes. <laughs> Be patient. Let compound interest kick in. Earn your money, dog. Save find that money. Find that balance. Save that, that money, but find that balance and live your life. Enjoy. So if you guys have any questions, you can email uh, Tommy at thomas.thruffle at ms.com. Thank you all. Make sure you rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. <laughs> and follow us on Instagram at nopoisonpodcast. Thank let, you, everybody. Let me, let me rate this five stars right now. <laughs> yeah, Attaboy. So. All right. Peace. Peace.